0: let's take our Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I forgot to mention with that last app we were talking about, the one that links over there, the other thing that it does is it gives you a notification as soon as those messages are posted. Um, We don't post them right away, but I know the ladies in the office, they're on top of it. They get it posted pretty quick on Monday morning, but as soon as those are available, it'll notify you, which is kind of a a neat feature there if you want to check that out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we are continuing our series now in this in these two books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and with 1 Thessalonians, we've seen the theme of living in these last days, living in these last days. Last week we followed Paul and his missions team on the second missionary journey as they left from Antioch and began traveling through Asia Minor. We saw the team of men that were with him, Paul, Silas, Timothy, eventually Luke would join as well. We saw how God directed them when they had thoughts of going into Asia, of going to the east. God directed them through a vision to the west. And we saw how God blessed um, as they entered the city of Philippi in in spite of the night in prison uh, that Paul and Silas had. The newborn church that they left behind uh, was, a, was a wonderful church and a church that was close to the heart of the Apostle Paul. He left Luke behind there uh, to care for that church. And you might say, well, where do you get that from? If you read Acts chapter 16 very carefully, you'll notice, and actually the previous chapter as well, you'll notice the, the, the change of pronouns, the we and the us, for a short time. And then it goes, switches back. And so that's kind of where we put that, those pieces together. Luke must have stayed behind in philippi to help with the work there while paul and the rest of the team moved on and you might remember they were they were asked to do that all right in uh, in philippi they had uh, come and, and the authorities had mistreated them by throwing them into prison even though paul was a roman citizen and then they said they got word of that, and they got sort of scared, and, oh, can you just let them go? Can you release them? And Paul says, hey, you come and you, you release them, release us yourselves. You put us in here. But eventually they do release them, and then they ask him, would you please leave? And so uh, they left, and his team moved on then to the city of Thessalonica, where this church is located. So we saw in Acts 17, we saw the fruitful three weeks of preaching there in the local synagogue that uh, Paul used Uh, to preach the gospel, and there was great results from that. The great multitude of, of the devout Greeks that were saved... There was the, the uh, chief women, not a few, not a few becoming believers. And so God blessed in those three weeks as well as whatever remaining time they were able to spend there. We saw how Paul labored night and day. Chapter 2, verse 9 mentions this. Uh, uh, caring for the needs of both himself and the missions team so that they could preach the gospel freely. And that involved laboring in the ministry. That also involved laboring and just earning the funds that were necessary in order to do that. And we saw last week how even during that time they received some love offerings from the city of Philippi while they were in Thessalonica. But then we saw at the end of Acts 17 the persecution on the house of Jason and the eventual need for Paul and the team to leave. Unfortunately, though, this was not the end. Just because Paul and the team left, it wasn't the end of the persecution and uh, the book uh, in, here in um, First Thessalonians, we read about some of the persecution that they faced even after Paul had left. Paul describes in chapter 2, if you want to scan over there to verse 17, he describes having to leave the church. He uses these words, verse 17, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, my heart's still there, Endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desires. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan hindered us. These people were on the heart of the Apostle Paul, and he wanted to come back multiple occasions. I've got to go back. And Satan hindered every single time. We saw how Paul traveled eventually to the city of Berea. And then on to the city of Athens and eventually Corinth. And while in Athens, Paul would finally get the opportunity after trying and trying and trying and being hindered. Finally, he would get the opportunity to send Timothy from Athens back to Thessalonica because he was so concerned for them. How are they doing? They, they, there's needs. They need to be established. He mentions this in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. I'm sending, I sent Timothy because he needed to, to establish your faith and comfort you concerning the persecutions that, that both you endured and we have endured together. And of course, Timothy was there for some time, returned to Paul. and By that time, Paul is in Corinth, and he hears about all that's going on in Thessalonica, about their steadfastness, their faithfulness, how they continued serving God despite the persecution. And so Paul was so encouraged by hearing about how these believers were doing that immediately he begins to write exactly what's in front of us here tonight, the book of First Thessalonians. And of course we mentioned last week this is an incredibly uplifting, encouraging letter specifically about living in these last days. We pick up um, our reading, we looked at the first four verses last week, we pick up in verse number five, and I want to remind you as we read some of the things that we we see about this church, they're only six months to a year old. They've only been saved for a very short period of time, but yet God has done great things for, for them, God has worked through them, and we find that they are an example to us. But let's pick up, you'll see that there in, in, uh, in verses 5 through 10. Verse 5, he says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe. In Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God where it is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. Lord, would you help us in these next few minutes, help us to see what you have preserved here and how you describe these believers in Thessalonica. I pray that you would help us to to clearly understand the pattern that is left behind for us. And we go beyond that, not only just understand the pattern, but we would apply the pattern to our own lives. And I pray that you'd help us to even go forth from this place different than how we came in. Lord, I need your help in order to do that. I need your power and strength and wisdom. I pray that you bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at the model, the model church that we find in Thessalonica. Tonight, I want you to see a gospel pattern, an example that's left for us, Paul mentions that in, in verse 7. So that ye were in samples to all that believe. That word in sample means a mark, an imprint, a pattern. And we see this pattern for us in three very distinct ways. There is a pattern of gospel preaching. We find that in verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. There is a pattern for gospel preaching. We see how Paul entered the city of Thessalonica, how he preached and how the preaching that he brought forth was able to impact and change lives to the point that churches were planted. I don't I don't know about you tonight, but if if you're saved... And, and, and you're walking with God, then you have a heart, you ought to have a heart, of seeing not only the gospel go forth, but people getting saved, and churches being planted. Amen. That ought to be something that, that gets you going. It ought to be something that motivates you. It ought to be something that's important to you. How does that happen? What's the plan? How do we go about doing this? There are needs all around us. There are needs for churches and places all around us how do we go about meeting that need there's a pattern that's here all right notice there's five elements there's five elements of Paul's gospel preaching and these are the elements that we ought to seek to pattern our own gospel preaching by the first element is of course the word he says for our gospel came our gospel came not unto you in word only now often we skip by this part but Paul's not diminishing the importance of the word It is the the foundational start. It is where everything begins. We would not know anything apart from the Word, the the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we would not be able to communicate to this world without words. Taking the Word that God has given us and communicating that to others. And the Bible is very clear about the importance of the Word. Romans 10, verse 17. You're familiar with this verse. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We if we're going to we're going to communicate the gospel, we're going to need to communicate God's word. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 25, it tells us by the word but the word of the Lord endureth forever and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. In order for the gospel to be preached, we need the word. We need God's word. And we need the ability to take God's word and speak God's word and say God's word. The word is foundational. It's where everything begins. It's where everything starts. But the word, you'll notice, is not alone. It's not only. Our gospel did not come only in word, but also in addition to the word, on top of the word. That's kind of like where everything starts. That's the given. But there were some things that were included with the word. You see the first one right there. Our our gospel is. Came not unto you in word only, but also in power. Well, this is interesting. How does the gospel come in power? The word power is dunamis, or if you see it transliterated, d-y-m, like dynamite, all right? That sort of power. Same, same word in Romans 1:16. We'll get to that in just a second, but it's a word that means strength, it means ability. It means, I thought this was an interesting phrase in defining the word power. It is power residing in something by virtue of its nature or by virtue of what it is. So when we think about gospel preaching, where does the power come from in gospel preaching? Is it the presentation? Is it the animation? Is it the ability to weave a good story? Is it the ability to really you know, touch someone's heartstrings and you know, affect their emotions? Where does the power come from? Well, if you begin looking in the New Testament, being thinking about what does the, the New Testament mention as far as the source of power? Well, in Romans 1.16... I am not ashamed, Paul says, of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So the power is in the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, I think I included this one. Let me just see. Yes, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. So the gospel is the power of God. The preaching of the cross is the power of God. And so clearly the power did not come from Paul, his ability to speak. It did not come from his missions team. It didn't reside there. Nor does when we're we're endeavoring to evangelize, the power doesn't come from us. It comes when we are able to get out of the way and let the gospel do its work if we 're not careful in the presentation of the gospel we're looking for a way to present it and and and, and, and try to impact people 's hearts and we 're trying to come up with uh gimmicks or 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 uh, fancy ways to get people to listen or get people to, to 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 say the right answer to say what we want them to say that we can actually inhibit the power that is inerrant in the object, by by virtue of what it is, the gospel being the power of God, we can stand in the way, we can get in the way. Paul says the word came, and the word came with power. So that means all we need to do is strive to present the gospel clearly, with clarity. And I know we kind of get into our Christian culture our our church culture and we're used to saying words we're used to sounding really spiritual when we talk about the gospel and and there's nothing wrong with biblical words I love biblical words there's a lot of meaning to them but when we're presenting the gospel sometimes we just need to be very plain and very clear We can use words without defining what they are. And we just assume that the people understand what they are. They've never heard those words before in their life. And we just kind of throw them out there because, you know, we're nervous in the moment. Just present the gospel clearly. With clarity. In a way that could be understood. In a way that you understood it. When God came knocking on your door when you got saved, how did you understand that? Did you know all the words? Did you, did you know all the, the biblical words for salvation and, and exactly what happened when you were regenerated and, and the, the, the word for conviction, You know that what God was doing in your heart? You might not have understood any of those things. You just knew, I'm in trouble with God and, and I need Him to save me. Amen. And really, that's what they need to understand. We need to strive to present the gospel with clarity so that the power of the gospel can work and we can kind of get out of the way and let it do the job that it was designed to do. The gospel needs to be preached with clarity. It also needs to be preached without complication. We have to be careful with this. And you know, you understand that at this church we do not at all preach in what some people would call easy believism. We're not about uh, twisting people's arms and getting them to pray prayers. You understand that. But sometimes we can be guilty of the other side and overcomplicating the gospel. The gospel is simple it is the understanding that we're in trouble before God because of our sin, and that Jesus is the way, He is the, 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 the answer that, that God has before ordained to solve our problem. And we need Him, and we need to turn to Him. That's that's the simplicity of the gospel. A, A young person can understand it. An old person can understand it. And sometimes we just need to preach the gospel clearly, without complication, so that it can do its work. So preach the gospel not only with the word, but also with power. It's possible for us. Paul describes in Galatians 1 and verse 17, describes individuals who perverted the gospel. They kind of added their own spin. They added their own sort of perspective. Instead of the gospel having power, it's like they stood in the way and now the gospel is perverted. And the idea of pervert is, is twisted. It doesn't do what it was intended to do. They, they removed the effectiveness of the gospel by their own ideas and their own thoughts. And we need to be careful that we don't do the same thing. That we get out of the way, let the gospel do its work. So he says, our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost. Think about what it means for the gospel to come in word and in power and in the Holy Ghost. Who is the Holy Ghost? Well, he is that member of the Trinity, the third member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He is God. What is his role? Well, Jesus tells us in John 16, I'm going to send the Spirit, the Comforter, and he His role is to convict or convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. It is the Holy Spirit that takes the Word and takes the message of the Gospel as it's presented clearly, and He applies it to the heart. He convinces men of sin. And as we are talking about God's laws, we open God's law, it is the Holy Spirit that says, hey, that's you. You are a liar. You are a blasphemer. You are an adulterer. You are. And on and on we could go through the law. It's the Holy Spirit that convinces of sin. It's the Holy Spirit that convinces of righteousness. Who is righteous? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who came, who lived a sinless life and then gave his life for our sin, who, who he sacrificed himself, he allowed himself to become our payment, the payment for our sin. And it's the Holy Spirit that convinces people of righteousness and it also convinces people of judgment. Judgment that Christ took upon himself and made us, made a way that we could be free. And judgment that is also coming apart from those who receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. It is the Holy Ghost that we need in our preaching. The Holy Spirit that is essential to the gospel being effective. If there is to be any fruit from our witness, our gospel must come with the Holy Spirit. That is why prayer and purposeful dependence upon God is so important. Because if our gospel go forth without the Holy Spirit. Then it will not be effective. We need the Spirit of God. But how many times do we just sort of go about our business. We do our thing. We maybe even try to witness because we know that's what we're supposed to do. But we do that apart from being in dependence on the Holy Spirit, apart from communicating with, with the Spirit of God, apart from uh, in prayer. It's, it's okay to tell God in prayer, I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to say the wrong thing. Please lead me, guide me, direct me. Please take what I'm saying. And I could, I could say completely the wrong thing and the Holy Spirit could apply it in, in the right way. Like he, is, he has that sort of ability. He's that powerful. But God, I'm here. Would you help me? Would you use me? I need you in order to be effective. This Bible study that I'm doing, know—I know I know we're looking in the Word of God and there's power in the Word of God, but it's the Holy Spirit that's going to need to take the Word and apply it to that individual's heart. Without Him, there's no power there. There's no effectiveness there. It just falls flat. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to be aware of that need. Otherwise, we just go out and do our thing, say our spiel, hand out our tracts, and nothing happens. True. Nothing happens. We need the Holy Spirit. So the pattern, we need the Word. We need power. We need to get out of the way, let the Gospel do its work. We need the Holy Ghost. We need the Holy Spirit. And then He says... He also mentions, and in much assurance. The word assurance means a complete certainty. It's the idea of being absolutely sure. Being confident. And I think what he's referring to, preaching with much assurance, is the certainty, it's the surety, it's the confidence in the power of the gospel. A confidence in the 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 ability of Jesus Christ to change a heart, to change a soul. It, it, the, the ability of, of, and the power of the gospel to take someone who is an enemy of God and turn them into a child of God. And I know on the surface we're like, well, of course I believe that. Of course I believe in the, the power of witnessing. That's why I'm doing it. Of course I believe in the power of the gospel. I've experienced that in my own life. But think about this. How often, and I'll ask myself this, how often have I tried to soften the blow of the gospel by glossing over certain areas? Does that not prove my lack of confidence? My lack of assurance? Why just kind of like really quickly get through that? You know, I don't want to make people feel bad. I know there's God's law and there's these things, but... Can we just sort of gloss over them quickly so I can get to the, the good parts at the end? And, you know, Jesus wants to, he has a plan for your life and, and he wants good for your life. And, and won't you just pray to him now and, re, and, and, you know, accept him as your Savior? And skip over elements of the gospel that are completely necessary? How often have we tried to do that very thing, soften the blow? How often have we written people off? And assume that the gospel can't really transform them. Do you see what they're involved in? Do you see what kind of sin they're in? Do you see what they look like? Do you see what sort of uh, um, uh, feeling or idea they give off? You know, that sense they give when you look at them? How often do we write people off? Proving our lack of confidence. How often are we timid in sharing the gospel? Which is an indication that we're not really confident in its power. It's an indication that we really don't believe that other people would want what we have. Can I talk to the second generation Christians a little bit? Those of you who have you know, grown up in a Christian home and, and I'm, I'm glad you're still here. Right, It's good that you're still here. But if we're not careful, we can kind of carry over this idea that no one else, we kind of are comfortable in our bubble and no one else wants what we have. In fact, in a sense, we're kind of ashamed of it in, in a little bit, and so we just kind of are content with no one else knowing about it other than, you know, the people that are close to us, and we kind of don't make a big deal out of it, and kind of, you know, shove it to the side, and, and what, what is that? Well, we don't really believe that people want what we have. We don't really believe, and maybe that's the wrong way of saying it, because I understand some people look at it and they're like, why would I want that? But we don't really believe that the gospel is the answer to the issues in their life. Amen. We don't really believe that it is exactly what they need and what will transform them. We kind of say it's good for me, and I'm just happy just to keep it right there. No, the gospel is powerful. Amen. Deep down in people's heart of hearts, it is the gospel that they long for. It is the, the peace and the relationship with God that they're looking for. Now, they might not realize that that's what they're looking for. That's what they need. But it is what they need. If they'll take some time to, 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 to listen, to, to open their eyes, to look, they will see that salvation, a, re, a relationship with God, is exactly what they need. And the gospel is that powerful. But sometimes we don't preach it with assurance because we're convinced that nobody's really interested. Is that true? Has God just, you know, in this day and age, because of how terrible things are, God's done? He's not doing anything? Nobody cares? I mean, I understand the Bible talks about the last days, and we do live in the last days, but the last days started when Paul wrote the epistles. He lived in the last days. You think about how Christians were treated in the centuries that Paul lived in. In the days that Paul lived in. And we are saying in our, oh, nobody's interested. in they, they were killing Christians. They were sending them into the Colosseum to be destroyed by wild animals. I don't, I don't know if we have much argument that things are so much worse today. Than they used to be. I don't know if we have a leg to stand on there. I think we need to go back and, and study our Bible a little bit. Study some history. And and we'll, perhaps we have it a little lot better than, than people in the past. But God's still at work. And we need to kind of fix our perspective. And get back to the point of saying, you know what? We really do have the answer. We really do have what the world needs. We really do have what what will will meet the deepest desires of people's hearts. It really is that effective. It's worthy of our assurance. But then he mentions one more thing, verse 5. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power, in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Well, that's an interesting phrase. I, I just chose the word consistency to describe what Paul is trying to say. He says, you know what manner of men we were. And the idea of what manner of men, that's how we conducted ourselves when we were with you. What was our lifestyle? How did we carry ourselves? How did we treat people? You know our testimony. You know what manner of men we were among you. I think there's a lesson there. Paul came to Thessalonica and he was searching for people to invest in. He lived a godly lifestyle along with uh, Silas and Timothy. They were a shining example of what a Christian should be, but you know what they were doing? They were putting themselves among them. They weren't, you know, isolating themselves and living on a compound, and we want to stay away from them because, you know, the, the you know, people in the world are dangerous. So we don't want to interact with them. He says, you know, you know what manner of men we were among you. Among you, there is that song, some of you have heard it, How Can We Reach a World That We Never Touch? We need to be purposeful about establishing and looking for gospel relationships. Now, I know it's good for us to get together as a church. It's good for us to spend time with each other, to fellowship. And our hearts are here. That's part of being converted. That's part of being a family and being a part of the family of God but we're not going to reach people until we are purposeful about going out and establishing relationships with other people. We have to be among them. And we have to allow our light, our lifestyle, our conduct, not that we never open our mouths, but our our lifestyle, our conduct should match. It should be consistent with the message that we speak. So for the lost people that you are among... Those that live next to you. Those that live across the street. Those that work with you. Does the message of your life, how you treat people, your honesty, your care of your own property, of your house, of your job, what does that communicate? Is that consistent with the gospel? He says, you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. You know, Paul lived intentionally in a specific way for their sake. This was his testimony to those that were around him. And his testimony was not just important that he would look good. It wasn't just about his pride and his reputation. I want everyone to like me. No, he was saying, I want to live in such a way so as to advance the gospel. I want my life to be preaching a message that coincides with what I am saying. I want people to hear what I'm saying and also see how I'm living and say, you know what, those two things, you could lay one on top of the other and there would be a consistency there. There's nothing worse than a Christian who has a life when you lay it on top of the message that's coming out of their mouth and it doesn't go. You've probably met some of them who said, oh, I went to church I, there was a Christian who worked with me one time, and you can fill in the rest. A lot of damage that can be done by a lifestyle that is not consistent with the gospel message. So there's a pattern here of gospel preaching. We've got to have the word. We've got to make sure that we are presenting the gospel clearly so that the power of the gospel can be effective. We've got to have the Holy Spirit. We've got to have an assurance, a confidence that the gospel really is the answer and we've got to live a life that matches what we're saying. There's a pattern of gospel preaching. There's also a pattern, and he begins this in verse number 6, a pattern of gospel responding or gospel receiving. How do we respond to the gospel, perhaps there's some of you here tonight. You've never responded to the gospel. There's a pattern here, and Paul points that out. Verse six, it says, "And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia." And you'll notice that verse six and seven are the same sentence, so they go together. Notice the pattern. It starts with receiving. And it should, number two should be gospel responding. I put the wrong one in there, but receiving. They received. I like that word received. The word receive means to welcome, to believe, to take hold. This is an appropriate word for responding to the gospel. And I know in, in our Baptist culture, we use the phrase a lot, and, and I'm, not, I'm not disparaging those. I, I've used the phrase. I'm sure you have. But we say, you know, you've got to accept Jesus as your Savior, that's not what the Bible says. It's not like, you know, if somebody knocks on my door and I don't know who it is and I open and I find out they're a salesman, I might accept the fact that they're standing on my door, but I'm not exactly happy about it. I'm looking for a way to end this conversation. I'll accept it, but I'm not, I'm not you know, gung-ho about it. Receiving is different. Receiving has the idea That you're waiting for someone you have not seen in a long time. And you've prepared the house. You've prepared a meal. And you know they're coming. And so every couple minutes you look out the window. You look down the street. Are are they there? Do I see their car? When are they coming? All right, we're waiting. That's the idea of reception. And these people, they received the gospel. They received what Paul had for them. Verse 6 says that having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. They received, they welcomed, they said, that's for me. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, the presentation of the gospel, that they heard the problem, they heard the fact that they they were sinners separated from God, and they fully understood that. And so when, when Jesus is presented, it's like, that's what I need, that's what I want, give me that, give me that. They received the gospel, but you notice that they received it in verse 6 in much affliction. Much affliction. Tribulation from all sides, whether that was the unbelieving Jews who chased Paul out of town, whether those were the lewd fellows of the baser sort that they hired, you know, the mob to get rid of them, whether that opposition was from pagan Romans or those that that worshipped idols. He mentions that in verse 14 of chapter 2 the opposition that they faced from their own countrymen, there was much affliction. In Acts 17, we read about Jason and some of the other brethren who were arrested. They needed to to post bail in order to get Jason and those men released. Paul himself, of course, had to leave. And it seems that this didn't even stop the persecution. You know, many people believe that Jesus, the message of the gospel, religion, is an easy way out. Of their problems. If you've got family problems, financial problems, physical problems, well, you know what? You just accept Jesus and all of your problems go away. It's the get out of jail free card. But do you realize that the New Testament teaches that receiving Christ might just bring more problems into your life? For many of these believers, it did. It brought problems into their lives. You know, many people, when they hear the gospel, are like Felix in Acts chapter 24. Remember Felix? He was one of the rulers with Paul. And I think I included the verse here, Acts twenty-four twenty-five. When Paul reasoned to him of the gospel, he came under conviction, he trembled, and he answered, go thy way for this time, when I have a convenient season, I'll call for thee. He understood the gospel. He understood the need. But he said, right now is not convenient for me. There's some affliction that's going to be involved if I make a decision. I'm not ready to do that. So let's just put it off for later, a more convenient season. Then I'll take care of it. And you realize if you read in Acts 24, the very next verse talks about how two years went by. And Felix lost his job. He was replaced. Never did respond to the gospel. He had his chance. You know, there are people who are waiting for the convenient time. For the time when it's easy. You know, when all the stars line up. Then, you know, young people grow up. You know, I want all the things to be in the right. It's got to be at camp and there's got to be this message where there's this, all this emotion poured out. And then I'll take care of it. Can I tell you, there is no convenient time for salvation. Amen. There's no time that kind of fits like, okay... there's going to be no problems if I do this now. There's no convenient time, which is why Paul says, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day. If God is convicting, if He's touching your heart, you realize, I'm lost, I need to be saved, then today is the day of receiving. The day Today is the day of welcoming, of believing, of taking hold. And these individuals, these people in Thessalonica, when they heard the gospel, they knew, maybe they didn't fully know, But they're probably aware of some of the affliction that was going to come if they embraced the gospel. And they did it anyway. And they did it not only in much affliction, but also they did it with joy. They received, they they, uh, um, took in the gospel freely and happily. And this joy comes from realizing the fact that you're in trouble with God. You're in a precarious position. You're a sinner condemned before a holy God and then understanding what Christ did to make your salvation possible. These individuals, they heard what Paul said, they counted the cost, and they esteemed Christ more than worth the cost. Whatever inconvenience, whatever obstacles stand in the way of you and salvation, they're not worth it. Christ on the other end, he is worth it. He's worth the price. They found, these these people in Thessalonica, they found the pearl of great price, and they put everything on the line in order to get it. You remember that parable that Jesus told? The man who found that pearl, a picture of salvation, the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, he sold everything that he had to buy that field so he could have that pearl. It's worth it. Whatever affliction, whatever obstacles, whatever the ramifications are, whatever might happen down the road because you choose now to act on the... It's not worth it. Christ is worth it. He is the pearl of great price. And so receiving the gospel is something that you must do now. Right now, as God deals with your heart. There's a pattern of gospel responding. It starts with receiving... And then it moves on, verse number 6, You became followers of us, having received the word. You notice they followed. The word followed, that means they became imitators. Or we could say it this way, they became disciples. Their lives changed. There was an impact on their lives. You notice that it says they became followers, first of us, and then also of the Lord. They followed us. This is the missions team. It's Paul. It's Silas. It's Timothy. They followed us. Because the soul winner, the evangelist, is the first living, breathing, in the flesh example of a true believer. And a baby Christian is naturally going to have the desire to follow that example. It's just natural. You are what they can see. You are what they can perceive. And so they're going to take a lot of marching orders from your life. Can I ask you, is your life worth imitating? Is your life worth following? It better be if you're going to be involved in evangelism. It better be if you're going to be involved in fulfilling the Great Commission. Because there's going to be some imitators. I hope there is. Now, I know there's, there's some things, you know, that we all look in our lives as not what they should be. But we should have a heart for following after the Lord. We should be like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11:1, be followers of me even as I also am of Christ. They followed us as we followed the Lord, and eventually they followed the Lord. So they received the gospel, their lives were changed, they became followers, and then the end of the sentence in verse 7, they became illustrations. They illustrated the gospel. They became in samples to all that believe. They were a model. They were a type. They were a pattern. You know that new Christians shouldn't be ashamed, and many times we see their example, they aren't ashamed of telling their story. They are the illustration of the power of the gospel. Here are these believers, how they responded to the gospel in spite of the cost was a worthy illustration to all that heard it. This is how it should be. As people heard their example... How they responded to the gospel was something that could be pointed to and say that is how it happens. See them? You see what happened? You see how they heard? You see how they received? You see how they became followers? That's how it should be. They became an illustration. They became a pattern of gospel responding. There's one more pattern in this chapter. And it is the pattern of gospel sounding. Verse number 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This pattern of gospel sounding, the idea of sounding is circulating audibly. It means to ring out to reverberate across the land. The gospel is sounding out. It started, though, in verse number 9, it started with repenting. That's where everything started. And you notice verse 9 begins in a a kind of a curious way. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. What does that mean? Well, he's referring back to, in verse 8, those people in Macedonia and Achaia who heard about the Thessalonian believers, they heard their testimony, they heard their story. And it was almost as if those people who heard and Paul would go to preach the gospel to them and they would say, oh, I heard about them. I heard about how you went there. I heard about how you preached to them. I heard about how they responded and how they turned turned to God from idols. Gospel sounding, in order to to be an effective church, an effective witness that the gospel would sound out to those around us, we've got to have the real thing to begin with. We've got to have a testimony of having turned, of having repented. Those in Macedonia, those in Achaia, and every place that heard their example, they knew how this happened. They heard about it. How they primarily, first of all, they turned... To God. You'll notice in verse 8, their faith is described as to Godward. A lot of times when we think about repentance, we think about turning away from sin. And that is an element. That's there. But the primary element, the first element, is turning to God. If you turn to God, you will be turning away from sin. You can't do both. But the first thing that needs to happen is you need to turn to God. And then secondarily, you'll turn, as these people did, you'll turn away from idols. You'll turn away from the images of God that are created and come up in, the, in, the, in the, the mind of men. For these believers, these idols were probably the images of the Greek and Roman gods. While those in our culture, their idols, or our idols before we were saved, was probably an image of God who's okay with our sin. An image of God that just wants us to do, do, our, do your best. Do your best in order to get to heaven and everything will be fine. An image of God that just, so just makes sure your good works outweigh your bad works and everything will be fine. That, well, everything will be fine. That's an idol. That's an idol. That is an image of God created in our mind to suit us. And that's what in salvation we turn away from. We turn to God and turn away from our ideas of who we think God should be. It starts with repenting. And you'll notice in verse 9, it immediately follows. You turn to God from idols to do what? To serve. Serving. The idea of serving is to become a slave. To be God's slave. Hmm. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? We would choose slavery. We would choose servanthood. Well, yeah, when you understand what the gospel means and how much it costs and how much God loves you. You'll take that on in an instant. Yeah. I'm And and Paul owned that the servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a slave to him because of what he's done for me. You notice why we serve him in verse nine. We serve him because he is the living God and he is the true God. He's alive. He's real. He's the true God. And that's why I want to serve Him. That's why I want to become His slave. That's why He is setting my marching orders. The gospel-sounding pattern starts with repenting. It goes to serving. And then in verse 8, it talks about spreading. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to God's word is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. There's a lot here. But this spreading abroad, you know, the, the, the message that changed their lives was becoming widely known as it was passed on. It started in their own region. It started in Macedonia, their Jerusalem. It continued to their neighboring region, the region to the south of where they were, Achaia, that was their Judea. And then it culminated in every place, their uttermost part of the earth. They're fulfilling the Great Commission and spreading the truth. And the, this spreading even went beyond the great missionary Paul himself, because the picture that Paul's painting here, that we need not to speak anything, it's almost as Paul's going out and he's going to preach the gospel to somebody. And they said, oh, yeah, we've already heard about that. Uh, we heard about those people in Thessalonica and how they turned from idols and to serve the living and true God. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, what do you think about that? It's like their, the effect of their gospel witness um, sounded out so much it went beyond the reach of Paul himself. Boy, what an exciting possibility that is. The reach of Lehigh Valley Baptist Church going to all corners of the globe, and we send missionaries like, "Oh yeah, I've already heard about your church." I've already heard some things from that happened there. Wow, that's exciting. They're a pattern of spreading. A pattern that we would do well to take heed. And then in verse 10, there's a pattern of waiting. He says, and to wait for His Son from heaven. Waiting. This means that we're watching. We're looking forward to His arrival. We heard about this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming back. Are we looking forward to His arrival? We'll be waiting when we realize, look at verse 10, that Jesus is the one who God raised from the dead. We'll be waiting because he's alive. Amen. He's alive. He's coming back. We'll be waiting because, the end of verse 10, he delivered us from the wrath to come. We have escaped God's wrath, and we will escape God's wrath, not because of our own goodness. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he's delivered us. And that's why we wait. That's why we're excited about his return. Is that how your life could be characterized? You're all about waiting for Jesus to come back? Now, that doesn't mean you're just full of talk, talking about it all the time, although that could be part of it. But you know that you have a limited time on this this earth you know that Jesus could come back tomorrow. And all you have for Christ is what you have done in the past. And there's a sense of urgency about doing what he wants you to do in the present. Is this what your life is all about? Is this what you're doing? I am doing what I'm doing because I know he's coming. Am i waiting for the Son from heaven. There's a pattern. There's a pattern of gospel preaching. There's a pattern of gospel responding. There's a pattern of gospel sounding. What pattern do you need to follow? For some of you, you've heard the gospel many times and you need to follow the pattern of throwing your arms open and embracing, welcoming, receiving the gospel in spite of what obstacles, in spite of the doubts in your mind of all the things that the devil is saying this is not the time you should wait. No. It's now. Receive it now. Follow the pattern. Follow the ensample of the Thessalonican believers. And receive. Receive it now. And for the rest of us, I I think, if you're walking with God, there's a part of you that desires more than anything to be involved in seeing people's lives changed by the gospel. But that means we've got to get involved That means that we need to preach the word, preach it with power, preach it with assurance, preach it in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, preach it with a life that's consistent, have a testimony for yourself, be involved in serving the Lord and spreading the gospel and all the while waiting for His return. What pattern do you need to follow? There's a lot here. I trust there was something that God applied to your heart tonight.